All right, welcome to the beginning of the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We have two sessions left to wrap up the letter. And this little section here from 1514 down through the end of the letter is really just concluding matters. In the rest of chapter 15, Paul discusses his ministry and his travel plans, showing how this letter fits into his vocation as an apostle to the Gentiles and how they, as the church there in Rome, can fit in with his ministry as well. So 15, 14 through 33, which, which we'll look at in detail here in a second, is all about Paul's ministry, the Romans, this letter, and how all of that fits together. And then in chapter 16, Paul has a whole host of greetings to various members of the church of Rome. And it's quite fascinating because Paul had never been there, and yet we have this extensive list of greetings, and I think there's a good reason for that. So we'll talk about that in the next and final recording. So here in this recording, we want to look specifically at 15, 14 through 33, where Paul discusses his ministry and his travel plans and the place this letter and really the Roman church fits into his apostolic ministry as an apostle to the Gentile. And 15, 14 through 33 really is composed of three smaller subparts, 14 through 21 offers a fairly complete summary of Paul's view of his ministry, and it explains what he's been up to, why he's been up to it, and in some regards, how the letter fits into then this ministry. In 1522-39, Paul then turns to his current plans, and these plans include spending some time in Rome and then moving on to Spain. But first he wants to run to Jerusalem and bring an offering from the Gentile Christians that he's been working with to the poor in Jerusalem. But he knows Jerusalem is a hostile place, and so he invites the Romans into his plans by means of prayer. And so 1530-33, the last little section, invites them to pray for him to be delivered from those who are hostile towards him and his ministry there in Jerusalem. So that's the overview. Let's jump in and look at some of the details. First, in Romans 15, 14 through 21, Paul really discusses his ministry and says that this letter, the letter of Romans, is an outflow of Paul's ministry. Here's the way he says it, verse 14, and concerning you, concerning you Roman Christians, you the original audience, concerning you my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you're able to admonish one another. What Paul seems to be doing here is after writing this letter, he kind of backs off and he says, look, I'm not jumping in and telling you what to do. Remember, Paul didn't start this church. He didn't have a relationship with this church. He had a relationship with some individuals who were part of the church. And so he doesn't want them to think he's butting his nose in where it doesn't belong. And so he says, I'm convinced of you that you really are full of goodness, that you have a good heart. You want to follow God. I'm convinced that you're filled with knowledge. You really understand the gospel and you understand God and his ways. And I'm convinced that you're able to admonish or instruct one another, that you can, you can help build each other up in the face. But, verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Notice that, that Paul describes this letter as, in some points, very boldly. He's spoken very frankly and freely with them. And he has done so, he says, 
to remind you again, to remind them. And so in some ways, he says, I, I, this letter really is a reminder. I know you understand the gospel. I know you, are, you have a genuine love for Jesus. I know you're trying to follow Jesus, but I've been frank and bold to remind you again. And so he wants them to, to really see the purpose of this letter, not so much as stepping in because, you know, they're foolish and foolhardy and don't know what they're doing, but as a, a way of reminding them of the truths of the gospel and helping them be grounded in that. And so he says, I've written to you very boldly on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God. And we need to remember that sometimes grace refers to salvation grace, grace given to forgive us for our sins, grace given to uh, justify us, right? The kind of grace Paul talked about in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, sometimes it refers to salvation grace, and sometimes it refers to service grace, and that's the grace we have here. Paul is talking about that service grace, the very kind of service grace he described in Romans 12, where each of us have been given some measure of God's grace to serve him. And the grace that was given to Paul was specifically this grace of apostleship, to preach the gospel, specifically the gospel to Gentiles. And so he says, because of the grace given to me from God, and he, he clarifies what he means by that in verse 16, to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And so that's the grace given to him. The grace given him to him is to be a servant, a diakonos, a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So he's Christ's messenger, Christ's minister, Christ's servant for the Gentiles, um, ministering. Notice how he describes here in verse 16 his ministry with temple language. He says, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Man, beautiful language describing his ministry. It's really the language that grows out of the way the Old Testament described the work of the priests in the temple. It's the kind of thing that Paul, as a Jew, was so familiar with, the working of the priest in the temple, the offerings that they would offer that were well-pleasing to God. Well, Paul says, that's my ministry now. My ministry is like that. And so what the priestly ministry was in the tabernacle or in the temple under the old covenant, Paul says, that's the role I fill as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so I'm ministering like a priest, the very gospel of God, the very good news from God, so that my offering of the Gentiles, because that's the focus and sphere of his ministry is the Gentiles, so that my offering of the Gentiles, like offering them up to God, may be acceptable may be well-pleasing, is the idea, may be sanctified, like set apart and consecrated by the Holy Spirit. And so this letter is an outgrowth of the grace that God gave Paul to minister among the Gentiles, to call the Gentiles to Christ and to God. And so this letter is simply an extension of that. It's one outwork of that. And so it's, it's not out of place. It's not overstepping the bounds. This is who, who God has called Paul to be, and this letter is simply an expression of that, even though Paul didn't start this church and doesn't have a relationship with him. Paul then goes on in verse 17 to 
say how this grace given to him and this calling given to him leads him to boast in Jesus. And that's all he really wants to boast about and glory in and celebrate is what, what God is doing through him or what Jesus is doing through him. And so he says in verse 17, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. More literally, what verse 17 says is, Therefore, I have... I have the boasting in Christ Jesus in the things pertaining to God. And so he's describing how he's boasting in Jesus. That's what he's boasting in. And that word boasting is this idea of proudly rejoicing. It's the idea of celebrating. It's not just arrogantly bragging. It's like I'm celebrating and glorying in and proudly rejoicing in Jesus Christ with regard to the things of God. In fact, Paul says in verse 18, I won't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word or deed. And so Paul's like, I, I, I'm not even going to dare, literally, I'm not going to dare to speak about anything else except what Jesus is accomplishing through me. So I'm not going to boast in my own accomplishment, my own skills, my own knowledge. I only want to boast in what Jesus is doing in and through me. I'm only going to talk about what Jesus is doing through me. And the result of what Jesus is doing through me is the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And if you recall way back at the beginning of the letter, Paul said in the introduction to the letter in 1.5, that's what his aim is. His aim is the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And that's all Paul wants to work for, and that's all Paul is going to celebrate is what God is doing through him, what Christ is doing through him, resulting in the obedience of Gentiles, both in word and in deed. Now, the first half of verse 19 then describes the power with which Christ has worked this way through Paul. So you want to make sure you connect the very first little bit of verse 19 with the Middle of verse 18. Verse 18 says that Paul's not going to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in, verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit. So that resulting in the obedience of Gentiles by word and deed kind of interrupts the flow of thought a little bit. Um, and so what we're describing there in the first half of 19 is how Christ has accomplished these things through Paul. And he's done so in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. In fact, Paul calls the, these things in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, the marks of the apostles. He's right. He, he's like, the marks of the apostles were accomplished through me, were worked through me. And so Jesus has worked very powerfully through Paul in the power of the Spirit, in the power of signs and wonders. And that powerful working has led to the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And Jesus' worked so powerfully through Paul, he says in the second half of verse 19, that from Jerusalem, round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so Paul says, really, in this geographical region, I have, I have fulfilled my ministry. Jesus worked so powerfully for me and opened so many doors for me that I have, in some regards, fulfilled my ministry in this geographical region, and so I'm going to turn my attention elsewhere, and he'll describe that in the next part of this section. But here he, he says, so that from Jerusalem, we know where that is, Jerusalem, 
round about as far as Illyricum, like in this big arcing stretch from Jerusalem all the way up to northern Greece. That's where Illyricum is, is in northern Greece. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Interestingly enough, in the book of Acts, we have no record of Paul ever making it all the way up to Illyricum. But that shouldn't surprise us because we know the book of Acts doesn't describe all of Paul's travels and all of Paul's preachings. It is a selective account. There's no way Luke could have described it all, so he chose certain accounts. My guess is, um, based on Acts chapter 20 and then trying to piece that together with the chronology of the letters, that it's probably... Uh, there's about a year and a half, a year and three months in there that's just summarized in a couple verses. And my guess is in that year, year and three months, uh, when Paul is in Philippi and Paul's in uh, northern Greece, that he preached in areas that aren't described in detail there. That's probably where he went all the way up to Illyricum. And the point, of course, is that Paul has fulfilled his ministry in that part of the Mediterranean world. And if you stop and think about it, it's really remarkable. Romans was written probably around 57 or 58. Paul's first missionary trip, as we describe it, was uh, around 46 to 48. So it's only been 10, 11, or 12 years since Paul has been traveling and preaching and starting churches. And in that 10 to 12 years, now there are churches all throughout modern-day Turkey. There are churches across the Aegean Sea into northern Greece. There are churches down in Athens and Corinth as well that Paul truly has planted gospel-centered churches all over the eastern Mediterranean world in just 10 to 12 years. And so Paul's like, I'm ready to move on from that. I'm ready to move forward. And so he says in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. I didn't want to go preach somewhere where someone else had preached, where there was already churches. I wanted to go into fresh territory so that I wouldn't build on another man's foundation. I didn't want to step on anyone's toes. I didn't want to uh, build on somebody else's work. Uh, I wanted to go where Christ wasn't already named. And so in verse 21, Paul actually quotes Isaiah 52, 15, and says this, But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And so taking Isaiah 52, 15 as really his marching orders, Paul wants to go where people don't know about Jesus and haven't heard about Jesus. And by the way, Isaiah 52, 15, this passage that's quoted here in verse 21, is the last verse of Isaiah 52. And if you're familiar with Isaiah, the very next chapter, Isaiah 53, is um, one of those great servant passages in Isaiah. It is the most clear description of the work of Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. And so Paul looks at that and says, I, I want to go and preach that, that news about Jesus. I want to preach it where people don't know, where they haven't heard. I want to break fresh ground with the gospel. And so that becomes his lead-in for describing why he wants to come and visit them and where he wants to go after visiting them. And so in verse 22, Paul turns to his current plans and the Roman church's place in those plans. And so he says in verse 22, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, right? He's preached all throughout those regions. So with no further place 
in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and then be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Sort of a long, convoluted sentence, but here's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying, I've preached everywhere I can in these regions. I've had for years a longing to come to you. I haven't forgotten about you or overlooked you. You're right in the sphere of my ministry. I just haven't been able to get there yet. And so I want to come and I want to go on beyond you all the way to Spain, which is like the western edge of the empire, but I want to enjoy your company for a while. And so just describing, even though it's kind of a long convoluted sentence, just describing his desire to see them, to spend some time with them, and to actually bring them into the sphere of his ministry. In fact, he says, I want you guys to help me on my way there, my way to Spain. I want you guys to be like a launching pad for my ministry to the West. Just as Antioch in Syria has been the launching pad for his ministry in the East, you guys can be the launching pad, the sending church for my ministry to the West. And that's sort of the way Paul seems to be thinking about his plans here. But before he does that, before he stops by there, spends some time with them, grounds them in the gospel, and then heads to Spain, Paul says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. What he means by serving the saints he's going to describe in the following verses is an offering that he's been actually working on for several years as he visits the churches that he started uh, over his third missionary journey. He's collecting funds for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And so he says in verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia, two geographical regions, uh, Macedonia is pretty much northern Greece. Achaia is Greece itself. So Greece and northern Greece have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So they've contributed an offering. Paul's been gathering this, which just think about this, that there wasn't credit cards, there wasn't international banking, there wasn't paper money. It, this was all coinage. They've been collecting money bags from churches, carrying them with them, and now they're going to go to Jerusalem with this money. When you read the book of Acts, you realize Paul's got a whole team of people that he's traveling with. Part of that is to just financial protection, right? Like you got to have a team of people to carry all this money and to protect you if you're carrying this money. Uh, some of it is training people for ministry. So Paul's not doing this by himself. He's got a team of people that's helping him. And they've been collecting this money among Paul's churches there in Macedonia and Achaia for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He says in verse 27, yes, they were pleased. This was their free decision. This was something they wanted to do. They were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. Uh, so they were pleased to do it, and yet they were indebted to them. They, there was a sense of obligation. My suspicion is what Paul has in mind is the very thing he taught in Romans chapter 11, that, look, you Gentiles are wild olive branches grafted into this tree of God's family. And the Jews are sort of your roots. They're the trunk of the tree. And so you're indebted to them spiritually in that regard. You owe everything to them because their faithfulness has brought this story to the point where you could be grafted into it. And so they're pleased to do so. They were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them in also material things. And so they have been blessed by 
Jerusalem and the Jewish spiritual things, they're going to share material things with them. Therefore, when I have finished this, when I finish this task of delivering this offering to Jerusalem and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And so that's Paul's plans. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver the offering, spend some time with the brethren there. Then from there, he's going to travel to Rome. And from Rome, he wants to go on to Spain. That's his plans. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and the blessing of Christ. Uh, that I will come with your goodwill, with my goodwill, and we'll have a good time together in Christ. That's the idea. However, he also knows that Jerusalem is a difficult and hostile place. He knows that because he's experienced hostility from Jews all throughout his ministry. He also knows that because, right, it's, remember when we're writing this, it's 57, 58, um, the, the rise of Jewish nationalism is reaching fever pitch. We're only seven, eight, nine years away from the Jewish revolt in AD 66 that leads to the siege of Jerusalem. And then three and a half years after that, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And all of that grows out of this spirit of rebellion, this anti-Jewish or this anti-Roman hostility and the sense of Jewish nationalism. Paul knows all of that, all of that you can feel it in the air. So he knows his Gentile ministry and his preaching of the gospel directly to the Gentiles is not going to be well received in and around Jerusalem. Knowing that Jerusalem is a hostile place, Paul says this in verse 30, he says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now, before we look at uh, what the prayer is, just notice, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the, the Spirit, in your prayers to God for me. Father, Son, Spirit, all involved in this request for them to pray uh, to, to God on his behalf. And he's described what he wants them to do in their praying is to strive together. Um, the, the Greek is sunagizomai. We get our word agonize from agonizomai, right? Like it's, I want you to agonize together. I want you to work hard together. This is no token little prayer. Would you, would you labor with me in prayer uh, on my behalf? And what does he want them to ask? Well, verse 31, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. He knows that the unbelieving Jews in Judea do not welcome Paul, do not welcome his ministry, and he wants to be delivered, rescued from that. And so he's got some sense of foreboding about this trip to Jerusalem. And when you read this section of Paul's life in the book of Acts, and you read his this trip after he wrote this letter and his trip to uh, Rome or to Jerusalem to deliver this offering. You you get the same sense. He actually gets some prophetic messages telling him of the danger that's awaiting him, and so there's this sense of foreboding as he's going to make this trip. But it's not going to it's not going to persuade Paul not to go. This offering is too important, so he's asking for the Roman Christians to join in praying that he might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, 
The God of peace be with you all. Amen. And so Paul has invited them in to pray for him. And we can look back historically and we can ask ourselves, was Paul's prayer request and Paul's own prayer for his deliverance answered? Well, not exactly. Um, Paul got arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, he almost got beaten to death in Jerusalem. And so that part of his prayer was not answered. Um, Paul got arrested and he didn't get rescued from those who were disobedient in Judea. Nevertheless, uh, the saints did welcome his service, this offering. And nevertheless, he did come to Rome. He just didn't come as he expected. Uh, he came as a prisoner two years after being arrested in Jerusalem. And so things did not turn out the way Paul expected. They turned out more the way Paul feared. And his prayers really weren't fully answered, at least the way Paul had been asking them and the way Paul had envisioned them. And yet when you read the book of Acts and when you read Paul's letters written during his imprisonment, it didn't rattle Paul's perspective, and it didn't rattle Paul's faith in God. He trusted that God knew what he was doing and that God was sovereign in all of this, and he, he actually saw the hand of God even in his imprisonment in Rome. 